वेलकम टू सन टॉक The Sin Talkers around the table today discuss the process of decaying. We'll think about the similar and dissimilar processes of decay in computational, neurological, social and metaphysical domains. What might be the interrelationships between order, memory, disease, energy, language, complexity, space and time with the notion of decay? is decay always inevitable and why why and how are natural and artificial systems different in this context is it possible to formally model decay in other different forms of decay are perpetual systems possible why does life force wax and wane and what is the future of decay We are pleased and privileged to have three Sin Talkers with us here today. Professor Sanjeev Jain, who teaches and practices psychiatry at Nimhans in Bangalore. His research interests lie in molecular biology, genetics, and history of medicine, specifically psychiatry. Professor Madhavan Mukund, who is a computer scientist teaching at CMI, Chennai. Uh, he is interested in automata theory, formal verification, and logic. And Dr. Bhrigupati Singh, who teaches anthropology at Brown University in the U.S., and he is interested in the areas in the overlap between anthropology and philosophy. Sanjeev, why don't we set the ball rolling with you? Um, maybe in a slightly different place uh, around the notions and ideas of order, um, mm-hmm. because when we want to reflect or think about the notion of decay, uh, it probably is an interesting place. So, what is order, and why is um, um, why is that an interesting place to start as you think about the notion of decay? Well, uh, one was taught in medical school that. Uh, that the whole idea of human life per se is a kind of a hole in the laws of entropy mm-hmm. that uh, biological systems evolve towards greater and greater complexity and order which on its surface seems to be antithetical to the idea of entropy in physics you are taught everything goes towards entropy in biology you are taught everything grows towards order yeah and dysfunction that order give rise to the notion of disease mhm so mm-hmm. and, and that so that becomes a very fundamental aspect in medicine specifically that a disordered disordered you know functioning of biological systems it what we recognize in, as disease and becomes even more pertinent in let's say in psychiatry or mental health we the notion of order in mental, in psychological processes is not defined at all right we don't know what what ordered thinking is we don't know what thinking is leave alone ordered thinking right and therefore this becomes one of the big uh, issues in defining you know mental health mental health what is the notion of order and why does maintaining the order in of thinking require so much energy again going back to basic biology 40% of your blood and oxygen in your resting state is used up by the brain mm. even a small reduction in that gives rise to significant changes in orderliness of thinking you get confused you get disoriented and you may die Mm. So mm. the maintenance of this order is highly energy dependent. And what do you mean when you use the word order in the context of the brain specifically? Well, what I, does it mean for a brain to be ordered well, or in, a, in, in a state of order? You know, physical sense is just the the basic chemistry of it, the chem, the chemicals and the blood supply and the connections and the wiring. Sure. Maintaining that actually needs a very significant input of energy. We don't know how. so maintaining order needs energy maintaining order needs that energy mm. but within that when you start looking at the way the brain calls upon memory its own psychological inner, inner working mm-hmm. the inner workings of others minds so there the brain creates an order which is kind of a metaphorical order in its relationship between the past and the and the present yeah and can switch that order into planning in the future yeah now that order and the biological order 
we don't know what the connections are. We absolutely have no idea how these two planes of order interact with each other. Yeah. And yeah. That, is the, that is the phase in which neuroscience operates, which is trying to operate. We are trying to answer those questions, both by understanding how when patients have diseases which reflect errors in this planning, what goes wrong? Sure. I, you brought up this interesting notion of memory, which we'll maybe right. come back to as we go along. Um, Bhrigu, we travel to you. Um, what is order for you? And, you know, you've spoken in the past about this entire notion of life force. In, in how does one think of that? And let's bring in the notion of DK here. I think um, for social theory, the question of order has been absolutely foundational mm -hmm. because many of the founders, founding social thinkers like Durkheim, or many of what is called the school of functionalism, even in India, many of the founding figures of social science could be thought of as functionalists. Their kind of animating question, basically, was how is social order reproduced over generations? Right. Or which from a Marxist perspective takes on a very a more sinister connotation that how are relations of domination, for instance, right. reproduced over generations. You're bringing the element of power. But Durkheim mm. and the Durkheimians, by and large, have thought of order as a good thing. Mm. Not necessarily because they're conservative, but because basically they're considered themselves to be writing at very turbulent times and their interest is in social solidarity, in cohesion. Um, but from a radically different philosophical perspective, uh, it's basically the question of, or even for the social theorists, the question of what then becomes decay. If one thinks of decay as a companion concept to order, mm -hmm. then the question becomes that it's not the same, decay is not the same as disaster. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a different kind of negation which happens at a more everyday level. Mm -hmm. So for founding sort of social science, the opposite of cohesion were basically two concepts. Mm -hmm. One for Durkheim and Durkheimians, it would be anomie, would mm -hmm. be one kind yeah. of decay where relations of social cohesion fray. The other major concept for them would be uh, what in sort of philosophy one would call agonistics, which are forms of contestation, conflict, which are not necessarily bad. So, so within social theory, sort of anomie and agonistics would be two symptoms of social decay. Except that the interesting thing is that from a philosophical, from a more radical philosophy point of view, social cohesion like Nietzsche, Rousseau, a whole tradition of philosophy in which disobedience is actually to be valued as much as obedience. Yeah. Social cohesion is not necessarily a good thing. Yeah. So, so their point would be that too much cohesion is in fact a symptom of decay. Yeah. Uh, and one needs to cultivate actually more interesting forms of anomie or certain forms of creative contestation are actually a sign of social uh, energy. Very interesting. So and, the problem and, and, then becomes mm -hmm. basically that actually reading decay socially mm -hmm. is a very, is an interpretive question and deeply moral, theological, based on a set of value judgments uh, in which social theory sometimes is very um, almost um, either an ex extension of something theological what do we consider to be decay, social decay. Right. But it's something that's been constantly at the heart of social theory. That's interesting. And Sanjeev made this point about uh, how order needs energy. Um, how does, does that resonate with you in any way or with the Durkheimians? Absolutely. I mean, for each, I think that was something I connected with in, in Sanjeev's as well, which is that um, order takes work. Mm. And the interesting thing for many generations of social anthropology has been what is the work required to reproduce an order because it doesn't reproduce itself automatically. Yes. So forms of ritual, for example, or forms of almost many of our forms of social life. Mm. Uh, the Indian anthropologist Arjun Appadurai has a very famous essay called The Production of Locality mm. in which he's saying that actually to reproduce a locality for mm. it to reproduce itself involves a whole host of different things that are working together mm. and those might fray. And that's where uh, anomie and agonistics become when you see, for example, people who supposedly traditionally had celebrated a festival together mm. and they stop celebrating that festival. Mm. Uh, then they will often, in ethnography, one often finds people will say, you know, nowadays people don't celebrate together. And you find this all over the world. Mm. So, so it's a uh, kind of interesting question of where the energy required mm. to keep order mm. declines. Mm. such that even a festival or a ritual one might take it to be just a something that's the same every time right but it may have a very different energy right so it may be people um have that emotional investment in the ritual mm. has become mm. less mm. Um, mm. so so it's an interesting energy is absolutely central concept to the work required to maintain order 
and the subtle forms of decay that might enter when that energy recedes. Interesting, interesting. I think we're opening up a few interesting flanks here. Uh, Madhavan, we go to you, um, to the more computational realm and maybe bring in the element of memory here. Um, what is order for you and what is decay for you um, in a more computational sense? Yeah, so I think there are, first of all, it's a kind of now we are moving to a more manufactured setting. So we are thinking of material objects yeah. keeping things. So, of course, traditionally, materialistically, things decay because of wear and tear and and they don't have growth centers to keep them going. But if you look at information or memory, now I think we have become very uh, good at preserving digitally data without losing it, as opposed to, you know, when we used to store it on tape and things used to wear out. So it's paradoxical because in a way, memory doesn't fade, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily good because actually I think the information needs to be renewed. And if you look at things like uh, these controversies in in Europe and all that about the right to be forgotten and the fact that certain things which should recede and should go away. So if you look at information decaying, I think decaying is not always a bad thing in uh-huh. that sense. I mean, so information should become old and irrelevant and replaced by new. And I think if everything is around forever, then you just have an overwhelming mass of uh, information which is too much to keep track of. It's much like, I mean, to me, for instance, I I find that as I upgrade my computer, I never delete anything because the next hard disk is always big enough to store everything I had and more. And then over a period of time, you just have no idea what you've got and what, what, uh, and it's the same with, you know, uh, now if you do uh, an internet search or something, there's so much information of different types of, uh, you know, timescales and what is relevant and what is irrelevant is getting harder and harder to filter out. So I think there is a kind so of... So one is the virtue or the vice of it, Madhavan. But if you, if you just for a second think, why does something decay at all? Why does a computational system decay? Why does memory yeah, decay so, over time? Yeah, so what's, memory, what's I mean, so I would that? think that memory itself is not possibly decaying so much as uh, what I would say is that most complex computational systems have to react to... The world. To the world or to the situations around them. And they have to base this decision on some amount of information that they remember about what what has happened before. Mm-hmm. And now trying to uh, anticipate what is relevant and what is irrelevant is the very hard part of this. Because sometimes the thing that is most relevant for the situation at hand might be something that happened a long time ago. So what is the criterion? So when you come down to actually programming a system which will be running for a long time and governing something, maybe even, you know, like all our devices nowadays, including cars and planes and everything is running on software. So it has to react to situations and so on. And these things decay in a different way, which is that it's the same way in which older computers needed to be rebooted periodically because, you know, it's filled up with junk data and it doesn't have space to renew itself. And in the same way, software or systems which are designed in certain earlier eras where technology was different, the nature of information flowing between things was different, are not able to keep up with the different types of interactions we expect now. So I think it's really a variety. The the variety of sources that we now anticipate as being valid inputs to our decision-making or our controlling... So is it possible to design um, perpetual systems? See, I think Which would work like 200 years later? So I think we are. That's where I think people are now. I mean, a lot of things is converging back towards trying to understand really how life forms work. Because I think a lot of it will have to be, to some extent, self-renewing and self-healing kind of stuff, which I think nobody really understands very clearly. What what is the process by which you can make an artifact self-heal, r- repair itself, you know, or or try to understand that certain parts are useless and other parts need to be developed. And I think that's a very hard problem. To a certain extent, you know, self-healing can be just in the form of diagnostics. You know, they just anticipate certain failure points and keep checking and then say, you know, flash a bulb saying, you know, check this, something is going wrong here. But I think it's beyond that, right? So you wanted to actually uh, manufacture some new behavior. And I think that's, that's really very, uh, at this point, uh, extremely... Uh, unclear how this would go, you know, very... Uh... Got it, got it, got it, got it. And, and, and Sanjeev, if you think about this notion of memory mm-hmm. for, for a bit, um, how, how permanent is memory loss? Uh, 
if we go into that, I'd yeah. like to take up yes. something which Mahasan said about, uh, you know, uh, self-renewal and uh, yes. recovery. Mm. But uh, now this is something that we worry a lot in genetics because all the genome, the, whatever, the genetic code is constant through all life forms. And that seems to be a very robust self-repairing. Yeah. Every organism repairs itself. It, there are multiple different ways. We don't even understand how the various genomics of various life forms interact with each other. The human genome is probably one trillionth of whatever the species diversity on Earth. So we are in no way sure that we are the best to invent uh, memory in that sense. In but the, Sanjeev, the genomes do interact with each other, interspecies. No, no, but of the total genomic diversity that sure, is, sure. exists on Earth. a very Earth, small fraction. We are a very small fraction of that. Sure, of course. And for us to assume that our systems of memory and our systems of genomic organization, which reflects in our brain organization, yeah. is somehow the best, may yeah. be our vanity. It may not actually be true. Of course, of course. Like so, you were mentioning the other day, trees have a yeah, trees like four have and a half times larger genome yeah, yeah. pool or whatever. Hmm. But... But the fact that these systems are have been dynamic enough, for the process of evolution, for example, the basic issue is that why you find extremely minimally ordered things like prion proteins or viruses being able to punch holes into the structure of very, very highly ordered things like humans. Right. So a few base pairs of some nucleotide in a virus can punch a hole in your entire edifice of order. Yeah. Now, why does that... I mean, that's why I presume why, why computer viruses are called viruses. <laughs> so, <laughs> but what is the what is the notion of of order versus these kinds of you know anarchic processes that are at play sometimes? No, I think Madhavan's thrown out a very nice, uh, very attractive to everyone self healing mm. or what the counter concept to decay might be if it's not simply order. Sure. Even for anthropologists, it's been a very interesting, almost a mystery that in some form of social atrophy, when mm -hmm. you experience, for example, collective violence, riots, sure. it often happens between groups who are living very close, neighboring each other. And then they have to live together again in the aftermath of such an outbreak of violence. Right. So a very interesting collection of essays, for example, is called Remaking a World, in which a number of different people from dif different parts of the world are considering how do people live together again. Yeah in the aftermath and what are the processes by which some form of social quote-unquote self-healing takes place yep. in which the tensions may still be there. All those conflicts that created the outbreak are there. And the arguments they've given are very varied. Some have, sometimes there's government interventions, whatever, obviously legal provisions. But how at an everyday level, life gets renewed is actually quite a mystery. Some uh -huh. people have said they're very mundane things like doing a business together. Um things that uh, how a return to something like a routine takes place is actually a very interesting social question also. That's very interesting. Hmm. Why don't we go back to this question memory. of memory? Right. Uh, that's, so, I mean, does memory decay gradually? Does it, can it go to zero? Is it possible to have zero memory? And we're talking about biological systems. Right. Maybe just talk about human beings. Right. Uh, no, this is something that we've been that's been talked about in the uh, mainly in the psychopathology space. That, for example, in, when people have schizophrenia, they have delusions and hallucinations and all these kinds of things. So you imagine things that are not there, hear voices or see things, and usually this is in the perceptual space. Yeah. But increasingly, uh, there has been this awareness that uh, that sense organs are basically defined to reflect the physical world. So the eye can detect a single photon of light. Your nose can detect a few molecules of some chemical substance, sure. etc. And you can feel pressures down to a few bars. But we have no primary sense organ for time. Mm. Sensing time is memory. Mm. So the, the placing together of events... So memory is the organ to sense time? To sense time. Wow, okay. So the brain ha brains have evolved and almost every organism has to order events in its physical environment in the sequence they occur to be able to produce a behavior over index time in the future to counter effects of the current environment. Mm. So it becomes a useful tool for biological systems mm. to have. Now, the problem is, of course, the relativity of time. Does mm. the consciousness of a larva and a pupa and a full-grown fly continue through the three difficult different life forms? That's so interesting. 
There's What's no, the answer? We have no idea. What are the guesses? We have no idea. There are no guesses. <laughs> we have no idea. So when when now we assume, given human psychological theory, that the sense of selfhood is fixed in place by around two years of age, and then no matter how old we are, we are still somebody's papuji, and we are still somebody's sure. you know, little boy. Who, <laughs> it doesn't change. Our sure. idea of selfhood, vis-a-vis our social environment, yeah. remains pretty coherent. But when there, there that is a starts phase. Decaying, yeah, is the issue. So people with, let's say, Asperger's syndrome, autism, never develop that sense of selfhood. Mm. You mm. lose that selfhood when you start developing, let's say, schizophrenia or autistic behavior in adolescence. Mm. You start losing that much later in your life if you develop dementia. But we have no idea where the sense of selfhood resides. This is very interesting, Sanjeev, because there is a phase. Let's say one when is three, four, five years old, when you have a sense of short-term memory. You're going about yes. your life in a decent enough way, but it doesn't get recorded in a long-term memory. Absolutely. Why is that? Because, see, that that is. Well, you can answer that at multiple levels. It's the basic neurobiology. Mm-hmm. Your brain is. We all know the brain has got finite number of neurons which are fixed at birth, mm-hmm. but the amount of synaptic connectivity has two spurts in the first two, three years of life, mm-hmm. and again at adolescence when the sex hormones step sure, in and sure. they cause a several-fold higher increase. And then the brain starts pruning these connections by 20. So that's when the affective memory comes in. So you forget all of unnecessary stuff. Right, right. And you focus on what's utilitarian in some place. Right. So ultimately, human beings start using feedback in much the same way as a machine does. So whatever is useful, it, it, that memory keeps getting reinforced. And you, I mean, for example, I wouldn't be able to read an ECG machine with any ECG record with any degree of proficiency. Although no. once I must have learned it. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Got so it. proficiency, repetition are all tools of memory which reinforce certain behaviors, certain behaviors decay. And that's all this occurs. But within that, whether there's a vital force that is guiding all this mm-hmm. for all of us, for mm-hmm. all of life, we have no idea. Mm-hmm. And what's that decay like? What does the graph look like? Is it um, how linear is it? How non-linear is it? Well, again, at a biological level, and are level, there meta patterns at work? Yeah. Are there, are there? Biologically speaking, the amount of the neurons die about a lakh a day from the time you're about twenty. Okay. About a hundred thousand, but because you have three or four billion of them, it doesn't matter so much. Synaptic connectivity starts declining pretty fast after forty, but then. It seems to be inversely proportional that uh, so-called wisdom or the capacity to focus seems to increase after 40, 50 years of age to shut out all the noise. Now, that process also starts decaying with disease like Alzheimer's or with physical damage to the brain like head injuries or things like that. So there is a kind of biological element there which we don't know much about. But these this narrowing down of your repertoire of habits, of memories does seem to follow a particular order. We don't know the full dimensions of that. And is it possible for the for memory to go down to absolute zero? It does. I it mean, does. it does. I mean, in human beings, at least you get cases with transient, with global amnesia following a very specific insult to a specific part of the brain. So it does happen, but there's no general theory for it. Right. Now, right. the issue is that if you try looking at it in animals, does an animal which has a lifespan of, let's say, a day or two, mm-hmm. like a fly... Do they develop memory? Of course, they, they need memory. Oh. They, develop, they develop complex memories. They have, they have memories for faces of their conspecifics. They can recognize facial expressions on fellow flies. Wow, for a day. For a day. I mean, it's, it's a day for us. <laughs> day for you. For it's them, it could it, be... It's a lifetime. It's, it's a, a lifetime. life well spent. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the fact that memory can occur at different time scales or different proportional time scales is a even bigger. So the relativity of time from the Einsteinian sense to the biological sense is even a greater mystery. Is time measured only in proportionality or is there a notion of absolute time? Right. We have no idea. The, I think the philosopher who would be jumping up and down wanting to respond uh, to Sanjeev's provocation would be Bergson. Mm. Uh, because Bergson's matter and memory is basically suggesting uh, a concept Mm -hmm. which maybe only now in the digital age we are ready to receive, Mm -hmm. uh, which is the idea of the virtual. That we inhabit basically three levels or layers of reality. The actual, which is what empirically we 
part sense than the potential, which mm-hmm. is something we sense. Uh, and then the virtual, in which according to Bergson, everything as a, a sentence that's very hard to come to terms with, he said, he says, everything is preserved as it is. And it is that everything that's ever happened, every possibility that could happen, the entire cosmos is preserved. All possible worlds are preserved are in the virtual. Mm. Our access to the virtual, so it's not that there can be no disorder or memory loss, because our degree of intensity, according to Bergsonian terms, of how much we are participating in the act, the potential of the virtual, can vary a lot. And so a disorder would be where we are losing our capacity to inhabit a wider range. Sure. Uh, but, I mean, in social theory, a lot of people have found recently Bergson very helpful in kind of arriving at a non-Freudian theory of the unconscious or the mm. non-conscious. That how mm. does one think of non-conscious processes? Mm. Uh, not only somebody caricatured a philosopher. I'm very so the virtual is not the subconscious at all. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not. It's not. Yeah. Because what enters consciousness is maybe a flicker of the virtual. Oh, right. But it helps one to think about how completely something new happens or enters consciousness uh, or how certain people in study of meditation have found it very helpful. Uh, but also in just thinking about everyday life and sort of the presence of layers of time in which, like Madhavan was saying, it isn't that only in the so-called information age everything is preserved. Yeah. In the Bergsonian argument, everything is preserved. Yeah. <laughs> as is. Interesting. So the virtual in com- computational terms only translates that into a more material realm. Sure, sure, sure. Why don't we bring in the uh, concept of life force, Prigo, which Sanjeev touched upon very briefly. What is that? Why is that important? It's important. I mean, Bergson, again, is the founding thinker in a way of that of Elan Vital, but there's a whole tradition of people, uh, of philosophers who've tried to bring up, think about concepts of life force. And it's become from a number of different directions interesting to people today uh-huh. uh, because it helps you think about for example the human in in a wider uh, frame of reference that how do we think about the non-human and the human as not necessarily um, as mutually implicated uh, and so it helps one think beyond a lot of sort of dichotomies of nature culture or artificial and real uh, but it also f- I mean I myself came to it in my own work in order to think about quality of life Right. And how one thinks about uh, the quality of life, not just um, or very basic concepts even in social theory like human agency. So the idea that I found most appealing was waxing and waning life, which you mentioned uh, in the introduction, where it isn't that human potentiality or agency is simply empowerment. Right. Our life force in a way waxes and wanes. Uh, and that's for me been a useful way to understand it's also a useful way to engage a lot of other non-Western epistemologies or, or ontologies in which are energy-based or thinking about the body as a site of sort of a movement of different forces. So so life force is a very fertile concept because it's in a way overlaps with a lot of uh, the idea of chi in Chinese thought, prana, uh, prana in yeah. Indian philosophy. Uh, so it provides a very fertile way in psychiatry. Sometimes people express certain disorders in an idiom, like the heart is a famous, is a yeah. culture-bound syndrome in which people are complaining of a loss of vitality, yeah. uh, which in psychiatric terms is understood as a culture-bound syndrome. Yeah. But if one understands it as a concept which one can use to think about a number of different disorders or forms of decay, which are basically here, the concept of decay would be something like forms of dying prior to death which would be a slow ebbing of life force. And that is in a way opens on out to a number of different philosophies. Uh, which and, and the interesting thing is forms. What do you mean by that? When you say forms of dying? Forms of dying would be, I guess, um, I mean, the key philosophical reference here is Wittgenstein's term forms of life. Uh-huh. Uh, right. In which from within... Social theory, as I was saying, with uh, in thinking about decay, forms of dying would be basically an active process or so something that happens uh, and is an expressive form. So it's something that's happening, not just uh, that's occurring. So in, in a way, forms helps you think about the variety uh, of processes of the ebbing of life force. Uh, yeah. So it's... Um, 
it's a fruitful way of thinking not just as life so does a death. fly die differently from a human being i have no idea but i would i would like to know from madhavan whether would the life force be transferred to automata yeah so they think <laughs> what is that yeah <laughs> yeah so i think this is something which people have i think automata tend to be very deterministic and very uh, cons- i mean constructive rather than you know evolving in this sense i mean people i would say constructive they are sort of pre fabricated right so people put things in motion and they are supposed to survive unchanged so how to bring change into automata is kind of uh, a, a big challenge so one way is to have these networks like cellular automata where you have behavior which is influenced by your neighbors and the number of neighbors and so on but coming back to the very first point i mean the question of order versus disorder i mean if you're trying to understand so these things are totally uh, not self aware what so, does that mean so what i mean is that they are just doing things still according to some mechanical rule which is pre-programmed so it's not like they can adapt to so supposing you say in a in a cellular automaton kind of situation that if you have a certain threshold of neighbors then you maintain the simple a simple rules in the local region yeah but you would never have or rather it's unusual or rare i don't know of any working model where you could actually adapt this threshold to say for example this degraded like you know thinking of forms of death or a degraded form of activity it's very hard for systems to actually be in a way degrade the complexity themselves. is an emergent property in this kind of a yes. context where I mean, the f- most fundamental unit is just following some relatively simpler rules correct so the idea is that yeah you, i mean trying to engineer a a holistic complex system is very hard so maybe the complexity actually comes out of interactions of simpler systems and this is presumably how life itself functions at an individual neuron level i think in terms of the brain it's very simple compared to the complexity that comes from the network is is this, is an individual gene very simple by itself no what is the simplest unit inside the brain simplest no in the in, in the sense in which uh, madhavan is using it it's probably a single firing neuron yes right but then the most one must remember that there are about at least 100 different types of neurons Right. Which have different properties of. But any one neuron would only have a certain number of finite states. Yes, right. finite states because that any one number, but a single neuron can have up to a million connections. That's yeah. fine. Those uh, yeah. sure, sure, yeah. sure. So, That's because so it's part three, of a. So three billion neurons with a million connections each exactly. gives rise to a complexity which is beyond. what i'm told from my computer science friends beyond current levels of <laughs> exactly and this modeling. is this is the real problem with i mean forget about uh, yeah you know analyzing decay and failure and all that but generally handling systems with a large number of components even with simple components it starts blowing up in this in this multiplicative way because they're all and the number of different ways of interconnection if they just put them side by side is bad enough and then you also have different combinations and permutations in which they influence each other so it's it then you get further and further into more an empirical way of analyzing it rather than a kind of computational or you know analytical way in some sense of understanding the system you can't predict what's going to happen you can just run it and see you know you run the experiment and then you get a kind of stochastic kind of thing you know i ran it so many times and this is roughly what happens so you get a phenomenological understanding of uh, when things fail or when situations develop so in that way it's kind of i, th- I would say the state of the art in compute computational understanding of this is is rather rudimentary and it's no different or no better or worse than what people in in say biological sciences or physical sciences have and in fact i think it's not a coincidence therefore that this is an area where i think a lot of people from different fields actually contrib- contribute yeah. and converge it's not doesn't uh, i mean each one brings their own expertise i think to this so in this kind of a context uh, the dk would be triggered when you go out of context really Yes exactly so then first you have to define the context and that itself is hard i would say you know if you come back to more mundane software systems like you know why why does a banking system fail or the railway reservation system fail is typically because there is a, a requirement which was not understood or a situation which was not expressed so the person uh, you know is is used to a certain mode of operation things change technologically maybe you go online and suddenly you find that you know 1 million people are suddenly trying to do a transaction where in a physical bank it would not be possible and then you never accounted for this kind of thing so these are problems of describing what the system is supposed to be doing which so in the same way i mean if you are really trying to model something which is 
sufficiently complicated. Just trying to understand what it is that you're it is supposed to be doing in, and describing it from an external perspective and saying, okay, this is right and that is wrong, is very hard. And yeah, Madhavan, I'm just wondering though, in emphasizing the difference between or automata and humans, aren't you overestimating the human capacity for creativity? Because I can tell you that from people interested in studying human beings, the dominant trend for a long time was understanding rule-bound behavior within a context. You understand through different concepts, but the basic emphasis was on predictable rule-bound behavior. So how would that be so different from automata? <laughs> <laughs> no, that I think is right. I think you're right to that extent that I think a lot of things, I mean, coming back to society, society works because we all collectively accept a certain set of rules and then broadly stick to them. So the practical degrees of freedom are very few. Yeah, but at the same time, there is, I think, a certain autonomy which is not there in a programmed system. Or We don't know how to give that autonomy to a programmed system to react to a change in a constructive way. Typically, systems, we only know how to program to, you know, to fail gracefully or to say, you know, <laughs> I reached a situation which I can't handle, please take over. Right? So this is something which... For it to which, be aware of its failure. Yeah, so okay. that is what I meant by, you know, this very primitive form of self-healing can be self-diagnostic. It can say, I've reached a, I'm reaching a crisis, please help me. You know, but I'm overloading. Madhavan, is it interesting? Is it possible that there's a false negative? Is it possible that it detects something which is Very a much so, because, I mean, even that detection of what constitutes decay or failure... That itself is a competition ...has process. to be pre-decided, right? So you... I mean, as an example, there is a very canonical example of a, a, a spacecraft so, which was a, a, a redesigned model of an earlier one which believed it was failing because things were rotating faster than it had been programmed to think but the hardware had changed so it was not failing but it had been programmed to say that if some engine is rotating beyond a certain speed then right. uh, then there's a, a fault in the sensor so it shut itself down and crash into the sea for no reason, just after takeoff. So this is a kind of situation where the fail-safe or the safeguards that are built in could be actually based on false pre false premises or Is on there an equivalent of that in our bodies? Is there well, an equivalent of that in life? Is well, Eccles, that, you know, Eccles, uh, who's a neurophysiologist, got the Nobel Prize, I think he got two of them, wrote this very interesting book, which uh, in the 60s or something, in which he raised this issue that can if we think the human brain is a machine, mm -hmm. which at the sixties one was quite sure that it was a machine, <laughs> can you can a machine think about itself? Right, and that's what Malhan pointed out that as of now, we don't seem to have that degree of autonomy in the machine. They are all pre-programmed, but over time, do you think that will be that yes, border I will be violated? Yeah, so I think I, I, I'm skeptical, but uh, it's just that, you know, I have no idea, as you mentioned earlier, of how to get this notion of the self. I think right. there is, it cannot introspect in some sense. So whatever we claim are in intelligent machines are merely larger and larger collections of knowledge bases and right. better inference engines to connect them. But that may, that may say two things. It may say that even we probably cannot introspect. Yeah, so maybe we are not able to understand ourselves well <laughs> enough. And we may be confusing well our... Correct. computation for introspection. Correct. So that's right. So it maybe we well have a that. fundamental lack of understanding of how we should be thinking about ourselves, how, how the brain works. <laughs> you know, we are still maybe too much oh. in this mechanistic <laughs> mode. I'm, I'm still wondering as the, the representative of human, human sciences, <laughs> my colleagues seem to be overestimating uh, human capacities <laughs> because one of the fundamental doubts within philosophy, history of philosophy, for example, uh, Descartes, I think, therefore I am, is actually a very vulnerable answer yeah. to the question of how do I prove that I am not a machine or that I right. exist. Yeah. Right. And what is called the scandal of skepticism in philosophy is that no one has been able to offer a conclusive Absolutely. answer yeah. um, to the proof of existence. So, so I think um, the contrast is still, to me, blurry. Um which is explored very beautifully in cinema, for example. But uh -huh. I guess when you actually speak to somebody who knows about such things, I'm thinking of the film Her, uh -huh. which uh, Her. had basically a thought on failure or decay or vulnerability that actually the difference then in Her between humans and machines becomes basically finitude. Mm. That human finitude is actually much more than the machine's capacity to connect, to so-called feel, uh, is actually far greater than the human.
That's very, very, very interesting. Is it? I think why don't we come back to this question, Sanjeev, of mm-hmm. uh, you know the fail safe and the false negative. Is it mm-hmm. likely that uh, a living body dies on the the equivalent of the spacecraft or whatever crashing when it was not supposed to crash when it was all right? Are there phenomena of that nature? Well, we do have. For example, at a at a very mundane, I wouldn't call it mundane. At a fairly common level, we have patients who are when they are depressed, mm-hmm. have this delusion of nihilism that right. the world has ended, the world is grey, yeah. the insides of my body have disappeared, I have disappeared, I have been changed into glass so that people can look right through me. I don't have a physical existence. Depersonalization. They don't exist. No, it's nihilism. It's nihilism. extreme nihilism. <laughs> this doesn't exist. Nothing around me exists. Uh-huh. And then after a few weeks later, they are back to normal. So, so obviously, this this feeling state or this idea of complete decay has, to and, some and, extent, and, and what do you say to that as a neuroscientist? Ooh. Well, we, as would be obvious, we try not to think too much. <laughs> <laughs> so we just give them certain tablets, and hopefully, it all goes away. But it, but the problem is that patients come up with these experiences. And we still have no actual way. I mean, we, it's all nice to, you know, laugh about it, but we actually have no way to understand whether that is the real reality. No, mm-hmm. there's this... We have... We are being spooky here. We are being spooky. We are, yes. And, of course, when patients who have dementia, yeah. when, when they are ill, and yeah. they have that expression in their face that they need help, yeah. but they can't talk to you, yeah. But they are still communicating their need to be cared for. Somehow that expression or that need is being communicated, although they have no capacity to communicate anymore. Mm. Now that is also real life experience. Mm. So there is something which is absolutely non-verbal, non-gestural. There is no physical object changing. There are no sound waves coming to me. But I know that this person is distressed. That and does it, self does is, it need a trained eye? Or no, it not really. All of us empathize to distress across life forms. You do. Now, there is, so there is a whole metaphorical space which people have been trying to worry about as to where, where is this world of ideas or feelings actually reside? Right, right. You know, to right. take the... and. The answer to that is, I we still, I mean, as whatever neurobiology, you've been worrying about it a lot, because if you take, for example, that whatever we call ourselves as being education or science and technology, uh-huh. whatever it is, it seems to build a somewhat understandable model of the universe, so that we can reasonably say that modern science is not mythology. Yeah, yeah. I guess. Yeah. The and this production of this science has been a very human process, allegedly. Yeah. I presume birds with their magnetic sensors can also detect the fields of Magellan, but I don't know that they have a universal theory of magnetism, although they have sense organs for magnets, which we don't. But we probably know more about magnetism than the birds do. Now, why why has knowledge or societies evolved in a way that perpetuate this knowledge, Mm. that the knowledge of a magnetic field the rules of which were discovered 400 years ago become applicable to me through ordered knowledge, through books and the computers and software, mm. and then change the very functioning of my body and my biology. Mm, mm, mm. Because once you've been taught the rules of physics, mm. does your brain really change? Mm. But I can invent machines, I can invent the cars in your soundtrack, mm, knowing mm. the rules of physics. Mm. The unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. I mean, why, Precisely. Why, why does so is, is there a fundamental logic to it all mm. which we are not able to detect because we are trapped in these different versions of reality and we can actually interact with only a fraction of it at a time? Mm. Thankfully, Brigo is not that pro-human. <laughs> 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 Tell me, is it possible to live forever? What do you mean by life? This will be the issue. Yeah. Does Archimedes live forever? Does Shakespeare live forever? Yeah. No, virtually it in, is possible. In, in virtually virtually it is. So Bergson is living, Shakespeare yeah. is living. Absolutely. I mean, more yeah. living than many contemporary writers. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. But I mean, are there are there life forms that live forever? I don't know. There are there are trees which are apparently four thousand years old somewhere in the world. So why are there trees that just don't seem to die? I mean, what is it about uh, the way in which some life forms? So clearly, they have some self healing, renewing, regeneration capacities, but it's capacity to capture and store energy and are, use it to maintain order. Are they relatively less complex than we are? No, much. See, that's why it's we a capacity to to trap and store energy for long times mm. is the crux of it. Mm. Plants can trap and store it. They are the primary trappers of energy. Yes, and they can store it much longer than we can. Yes, yes. therefore they live longer. Yes. What is energy for you, uh, Madhavan? What does energy mean for you in the contexts in which uh, we've been discussing it? So, of course, there is a physical sense in energy in the sense of how much power you need, and that's. But it's really related to resources, right? So, you need to to program complex things because it's not just the amount of energy. There's also this efficiency in which no, it's it's absolutely. stored and restored yeah. But I would say the same thing translates. I would say to computationally, you know, the way in which information is processed and handled. I mean, why do you need more or less efficient algorithms to deal with? larger things so if you want to so you have to make decisions typically say you're trying to uh, i mean guide some piece of hardware yeah then you need to be able to react to sensors and make changes at a rapid enough pace to correct whatever is it is supposed to be controlling and that requires a certain amount of processing time and so then what, what is an efficient algorithm no so so you try to quantify based on how you so just something as simple as you know taking a list of numbers and sorting it in order right so the na- naive way would require essentially to compare everything with everything so if you have n numbers then you compare everything with everything else you do what would be some n squared comparisons but n squared becomes uh, grows very fast and then you can actually do some very clever tricks th- th- about uh, things about re- you know grouping them and doing them in halves and then merging them and stuff and you can get it down to n log n now n log n is like it's like so yeah. physically if you want to think about it if you're working on a typical computer then if you're using n squared if you're using a a list which is larger than 10000 it will be demonstrably slow yeah whereas n log n you can go up to like 10 million and it will be de- instant so this is a huge difference i mean if you're talking about physical data and this happens all over the place so a lot of computer science algorithms is about you know managing information and storing it efficiently and manipulating it efficiently and this translates directly into the resources you have to put in how much memory do you need how many processors do you need so one way of beating this bottleneck is to put in parallel computers but now these huge data centers like what google and all used to to crunch uh, websites to get you your search results so yesterday in some other context i heard a some statement like some enormous amount of the world's energy is going into actually running these yeah, data sets apparently set. it used to be 3 or 5% of all electricity in the world and it's inching to 10% yeah so it's in some double digit figures yeah yeah so it's yeah. reaching like the human brain yes yeah, so <laughs> soon you reach 40% perhaps you'll get the yeah, answer that is very interesting <laughs> that's very interesting yeah so that would be energy for me you know it's really physical energy but it translates into the resources required to maintain this to process the information maintain but the order but you're replacing the word energy with resource yeah so energy is a resource right I mean, we are using energy in the same. I mean, it's just a way of thinking. I like uh, uh, what we Sanjeev was saying was that you know the blood and whatever. So it's our bodily resources which are being diverted to the brain, and if they don't get to the brain, we don't have enough uh, blood going to the brain. Then the brain suffers. So it's, I think you used an interesting. You used the notion of parallel computing. So mm-hmm. if if there were to be perpetual systems which would work forever mm-hmm. for a second, do you think they would necessarily be distributed in parallel? Uh. certainly i would think so because i think th- there will always be some room for un unpredicted uh, failure for example so if nothing else for fault tolerance i think you need parallelism but also this would be i think a reasonable way to think of systems self healing by manufacturing some more components like themselves to take care of guys which have gone away i mean it's just speculative but i would say that that is more believable for me than a system changing the way it behaves internally well if you look across the biological space you know it really 
An ant, for example, has a mass which is several billion. It uses energy. I mean, if you it can it can lift earth, a mass yeah. Yeah, several no, times. No, not that. The order that it that the ants' life encapsulation, the ordered social life that they have, and how that's evolved, actually works at a level of energy which is a fraction, called trillionth of a fraction of what human beings would be consuming. Uh -huh. But the order that they create, in a sense, is parallel to human order. Hmm. They have complex societies. They have they have this. They have lifespans, and they create works of architectural complexity. So, so in that sense, the relationship between energy use or hmm. energy trapping hmm. breaks down. In that sense, so how much energy is actually required to create order? It's power efficiency. It moves in that. Yeah. So it's yeah. So yeah. is an ant a more evolved creature than human beings? The society of ant. I mean, I yeah. can think of any any example. Sure, sure. So ultimately, sure. it's all dependent on how much photons you have captured. Full stop. Sure, sure, sure. But it's how not... much of that is efficiently transferred into order? Can is there a fundamental unit of order, basically, uh -huh. which is proportional to the unit of, of energy? energy? Do we have there, any such there concept? Probably isn't. I don't know. <laughs> we'll talk. Yeah, but also, I mean, the other question which comes to mind is that, of course, the the range of possibilities is much smaller for an ant than for a more complex organism. So that also plays a role in some sense in what it means to maintain order, right? So uh, that won't be true. No? The arthropods in the world outnumber human yeah. species by. So no, no. I'm just saying that. I'm just saying that the amount of so it's the equivalent of you know to my the from range my of states that an ant so a, a small system or a small computational system is much easier to get right because mm -hmm. the number of things it is expected to do is much more limited and therefore the possibilities that it's going to encounter un unexpected situations which it was not engineered to do are also less but its functionality is inherently limited and then you can also possibly fine tune it better and then it's only when you get into more and more open ended and and large scale things that you start encountering all these problems of uh, so i'm wondering whether in life forms also one should make that uh, distinction between and the answer to that could very well be that ants are more complex than us but uh, you sure what's the future what's the future in the super long run brigo what's the um, is how do you conceive of a world without decay how would that be different it's it's obviously a hypothetical <clears throat> question. Yeah, yeah. No, I think uh, I'll answer that question by actually going back to a, a, something that troubled me in what uh, Sanjeev was saying. Sure. Which is that science is not myth, you said. <laughs> and as somebody whose bread and butter is studying myth and teaching anthropology of religion, uh -huh. uh, I have to say I'm still wondering about the claim you were making for knowledge um, as distinct from something else. Presumably religion could be and people have shown how. Um, I'm just curious to understand what would be uh, decay um, in in knowledge as distinct from um, something like um, myth or religion. Because thousand years from the perspective of uh, religious uh, thought yeah. or myth is not altogether that long a period. Uh -huh. uh, it's still thinkable. In the sense we are still living in a period where myths from 2000 years ago are actually extremely relevant to understanding certain kind of situations are quite relevant for understanding desires for example human desire yeah. is still I mean in psychoanalysis it's famously applied but in all kinds of ways there are people who've shown how the structure of religious thought or uh, mythical thought is actually a very rich way of thinking about the future for example because human desires are uh, often best understood through certain mythical forms. Uh, so so for me, the next thousand years, virtually uh, it remains to be seen uh, what becomes added to our corpus yeah. uh, because the virtual is also not static. Yeah. Uh, but does I this, would... Does uh, this virtual include the future? Absolutely. It does. Yeah. So uh, what's... Uh, sure. Got it. So the, but the issue would be, I guess, the slight... Uh, as an occupational hazard of some sort for an anthropologist uh, it is um, it's not necessarily a distrust of science but just the the question of what is most futuristic uh -huh. uh, yeah would my contention would be that it's 
not necessarily only say the digital sure uh, the mythical or the religious may be as pregnant with future possibilities uh, and is not a static domain at all we can see gods rise and fall uh, various new forms of um, icon icons deities emerge um and play a very important part of some of the things that sanjeev was saying so like so myths are not necessarily entirely proportional to the to religion yeah i think i mean people would say that many forms of contemporary um, popular culture cinema etc yeah. they recast myth in a non religious form yeah. but are still engaging the basic principles of myth that is the concept of the hero for example right uh, is absolutely central to myth uh, across different parts of the world yeah. which will remain as relevant for the future uh, in terms of how humans imagine their potentiality yeah. that's a very interesting issue because it it calls into mind the very you know for example let's say the events in the blowing of the bamian buddhas sure. or palmyra sure now that is the destruction of memory technically yeah. those objects were supposed to last forever yeah they had been carved out of hillside to be a permanent memory yeah and the destruction of that memory in the name of alternative myths means that people think that myths can replace one that myth can replace one another one myth can replace another yeah no yeah. Th- so therefore it becomes a war between competing myths the whole point allegedly of the enlightenment and the science of the last 500 years is that they can be there's one universal truth now whether you think that universal truthfulness of science is in itself a stalinistic monotheism <laughs> is a different issue altogether they couldn't say it but is 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 science a different kind to, of a myth I, so that that's exactly it no and as i mean bamian exactly. buddhas are one thing but science i mean anyone like ashish nandi many others have argued that 20th century is by far the bloodiest century yes. in human history yes. and if we think of that as a century of great scientific right. advance Uh, it's so, not necessarily the case so that, that uh, so that is precisely the issue so are our brains therefore although we are ordered thinkers are our brains doomed to produce more and more disorder mm and <laughs> no or <laughs> that the, the key question for me as i see it for the next 1000 years thinking in a thousand year perspective responding to actually a very moving example that sanjeev had given of a, a body in distress a person in distress where you empathize but what are the mechanisms by which an empathy can work psychiatry right. is one such mechanism religion has provided many other forms of mechanisms for responding to distress uh what will the moral imagination look like for the next thousand years that's very interesting what new gods will emerge yeah is as important a question as what uh, will happen in the computational science so i think uh, yeah no, absolutely sanjeev why don't we go to something more mundane is immortality possible possible <laughs> i know i'm calling it mundane but it probably isn't well with with google around and the laws of forgetting or the rules against the right to be forgotten i presume so immortality, immortality in the physical way in the physical sense see it's a very intriguing issue again in genetics that no matter what we are doing a part of our dna is essentially the same has been transmitted uninterrupted from the dinosaurs or the earliest prime forms of life sure so in a sense the dna molecule is immortal there so, is no new there's no new dna being created so is the immortality of the self possible that is a very different issue altogether so as it, a physical thing dna whatever the amount of dna is it's like you know laws of conservation of mass and energy the total amount of finite dna in the world doesn't change no, so, so the what, of, sorry what is the import of your question you yeah. want to abolish death yeah. no who wants to abolish it and the hmm. the question is if it is possible well if it is possible who wants to abolish see, it see there's a story by roald dahl of as trivial a <laughs> thing as possible yeah what this man who discovers all this biology and when he dies he orders his brain to be kept alive sure by various instruments and the brain is alive and the brain is reacting and he uh, because he's been con- telling his wife not to smoke all his life his wife keeps it on a mantelpiece and blows smoke ring that because he knows he can't talk <laughs> <laughs> so what what is what is what is death for a body in coma uh, they, they they die naturally a flat a flat eg curve a 
flat EG signal is taken as the So if I go into coma at the age of 20 I could die naturally at the age of 60 Technically yes that does happen often enough Right 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 See because the brain can be kept alive Right but the mindfulness of that brain is still a question of uh, it's basically decided by computation by sensors and um, and when the brain is kept alive in that form it it's of course processing information from the world we have no idea okay so that's that's what the basis of that quentin tarantino film is kill bill because yes. this lady is in coma and things people do bad things to her and when she comes out of it she knows who has done those things and she right wreaks right. revenge so tarantino knows something there No, cinema that's generally <laughs> engages coma very well. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. That's the whole idea of, but it's a uh, we really don't know. So immortality in the physical sense, with stem cell technologies, with reproductive uh, technologies, you could keep systems going forever. But how will you transfer that system? You could keep systems going forever. We could keep systems, but whether the system could. ability Well, the computational space had some answer to it. About twenty years ago, they initiated a study in which a camera would record everything that you do, mm-hmm. and their idea was that as the cost of memory slows down and as algorithms improve, it would refresh improve, that. No, when you're when you're older and you actually forget a face, you will get a reminder. The cache is there. The, the cache is there, and the yeah. face recognition thing is there, and you could go on. Now the issue would be that if you, after your so-called death, if you transfer this whole memory to somebody else. <laughs> Yeah, he could become the new Sanjeev, or, 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 so, or, or so. In that sense, <laughs> it would be more. Madhu, when you're silent, what's the answer? Yeah, I mean, I wonder. I mean, to me, it looks. I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but it almost looks like. Uh, I think that it's almost that death of individuals. I think is a necessity for life to. Again, it's a virtue-wise question. Sure. Yeah, yeah. No, therefore, I'm saying that uh, probably that's why it doesn't naturally happen. Now, whether it, it right. can be done. Uh, it, I think that people don't seem to be able to at a more mundane level. Yeah, I mean, and so again, it question of what is life, right? As is, as Sanjeev said, you could probably keep a you know brain alive, but it's no, not functioning we, in a it's not functioning in a normal way. So yeah, if you're saying that qualify can, that sufficiently to introduce the notion of self, why don't we end at a more mundane level? Are driverless cars an inevitability? Like two hundred years later, no drivers needed, cars floating all around, flying around, driving around. Is that an inevitability? Is that a relatively simpler problem to solve? Again, I I think it's a social problem. I don't think it is a technical problem. I think that if everybody has to agree that they will not in drive the real the, world, the, and I think that's so I think technologically it is certainly possible, but that requires the cooperation of everybody. I mean, we can't we can't even get people to to stick to one way and things like that. The point is that everything requires total acceptance. A driverless car, no, but socially. how something new emerges and becomes a necessity is often could be with status if driverless cars become your status symbol hmm. then that will be the thing to aspire to so and i don't think world, socially it won't yeah, be complex the world will remain stochastic as it is i think it's no, the no, computer scientists who have to figure things out <laughs> the world will be what it is no, but i think the point is well, i think that driverless cars yeah so it's a question of also control i think people i think like to have I think it's it's not just uh, the functionality of the car. I think it has a different. No, uh, I would like to disagree with you to say it's not the computer scientists. It's the religious thinkers who have to introduce, reintroduce the idea of self-limitation, which is <laughs> key to religious existence, some form of ascetic, uh, the capacity to deny yourself something. That will be a major challenge of the next thousand years. In How, any case, if there are four people in a car, th- three of them are not driving. There's just one dude driving. So. I think well, that's self. I, I think driverless cars will be will be with us very soon. It's like inventing the Harlem Shuffle. Mm. You walk on a crowded street in New York and you end up not bouncing into anybody yeah. else. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that's a fairly straightforward thing of sensation but limitations yeah. and the brain processes it at a unconscious level. Yeah, the fact is we are able to Ex- access the emotional state of this person who is not saying anything so hopefully we'll be able to figure cars out i think that's a good note to end this on thank you so much for making it and we look forward to having you soon again take care thanks thank you thanks thank, thank you thanks.